0: You are listening to an Institute for Mathematical Innovation podcast, giving insight into the maths behind scientific advances and how maths can be harnessed to improve our lives and the world around us. Thanks. Thank you very much. If um, I can find... There you go. Uh, so, it's good to see uh, a nice large turn How many of you people would classify yourselves fundamentally as maths? And how many uh, fundamental engineers? And what about neither of those? <laughs> 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 okay, so I'm, I'm an engineer by training, by background, I'm not a mathematician. So it's good that there are some mathematicians in the audience if the questions go down to the mathematical route. Uh, it's also really good to see Roger, uh, Roger's uh, uh, a PhD student that worked, or was a PhD student in our group, that worked on uh, questions like this, and a lot of the work that I'm going to talk about today draws on on Rogers' research, so it's really good to see you here. Apuat uh, is in Thailand; it's a bit far to come for just a, a short lecture, but uh, some of the work uh, is drawn from his as well. So, what's deterministic chaos? Is the first thing that I'll talk briefly about. Um, do engines exhibit chaotic behaviour? Maybe they do. Why do we care if they do? and what can we do about it? Those are the things I'm going to talk about briefly. So deterministic chaos. Uh, first thing to say is uh, chaos is not the same as random. Uh, there's lots of randomness in life. Uh, some things that we think might be random are actually chaotic and vice versa. Uh, down at the bottom there's a little graphic that you can find on the internet of one of the simplest mechanical systems that exhibits chaotic behavior, a, a uh, linked pendulum and uh, what you see is a branch of mathematics focused on the behaviour of dynamical systems that are very highly sensitive to initial conditions. And that's important to us as engineers. Uh, we have often quite complicated systems that you can describe with mathematics, and many times those systems are really sensitive to uh, where you start off and very small perturbations in how those systems uh, are configured. So deterministic means that the future behaviour of such a system is entirely determined by its initial conditions. Uh, if only life was like that. Um, when we say chaotic, we mean that uh, uh, although some, chaotic, some systems appear random, actually it's, uh, their behaviour is entirely governed by underlying uh, rules. And then you can't talk about uh, chaos uh, without talking about the butterfly effect, which was uh, coined by Lorentz in 1972. and you. Most people, whether they're mathematicians or not, have heard of this, and it's basically the idea that flapping a butterfly wings in Brazil could lead to a tornado in Texas. Is that true? Well, only if there's no damping would be my uh, answer to that. It's inconceivable that such a small incident would lead to such a large effect. In theory, if there were no damping, then that could be the case. But actually, it's, it's really hinting at the, um, the idea that small change in initial conditions can have very large effects on subsequent uh, behaviours of complex systems, and that's certainly true. Uh, but the butterfly effect is pretty much entered at uh, popular consciousness and it gets used all the time. Uh, there's the film about it, which I haven't seen, and critics hated, but the uh, viewers seem to like. Has anyone seen that? Yeah, I don't know whether it stacks up So to take a very simple equation that exhibits some uh, uh, chaotic behaviour, the logistic equation which was first uh, written to describe population growth. Uh, it tells us that populations can grow in widely different patterns according to initial conditions and slight changes in the system, uh, such as the rate of uh, reproduction within the population. And the same equation can give you all of these behaviours here uh, according to slightly different versions of R. And if you to look at uh, all of those different behaviours on a plot of the output or population X uh, as a function of the uh, rate uh, reproduction R, then you get a, a bifurcation diagram which shows you that for a range of uh, values of R you get a single solution, and then you get a series of uh, a range where you get two possible solutions. Each of those solutions then bifurcates to two further, and then you eventually get to the point where there are many possible states And if you look in a little bit more detail, it slices through that. That's where you have a single solution. Where you have two possible solutions, you often get systems that oscillate between those two states. And in this a slice here, it would be oscillating between four possible solutions. Here there are many possible solutions, and it looks essentially random. Uh, and a lot of engineering systems you can provoke into states that look like this. And you particularly find many engineering uh, systems that... Oscillate between two states, and the temptation is to think that they're exhibiting chaotic behaviour. It could just be a non-linear system that has two solutions, and it might not actually be truly chaotic. It's really difficult in the real world to determine whether that is the case or not. Um, because in real life, you've got truly random events. You have, you have noise, even a system that has all of the properties of a chaotic system. If, it, if you build a real system like that, or you observe one, you're going to have a whole load of truly random events superimposed over the top. So it can be hard to see the patterns, and it may even destroy the patterns if it relies on the feedback mechanism. The random noise can be so large as to destroy that that relationship. But you can still sometimes get a view in real life of structural behaviour through recurring patterns. So similar patterns often evolve in a similar way, or similar situation, sorry. And uh, some situations occur again and again in, in nature. Uh, Or to put it another way, as Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes, which is quite pertinent to politics today. You don't see exactly the same thing every time, but you can gain an impression that you are seeing something that you've seen before and you recognise it. Now, that's a very short introduction to uh, chaotic systems. Uh, Now, engines is where I'm from, that's my background, and the first I the engine that's uh, representative of what we see today, was, was built by uh, Otto in 1868, and his real uh, innovation was an engine that was much more efficient than any of the systems that were around at the time, and therefore it became very popular. Just for context, the first electric motor, uh, battery cell, and fuel cell all predated uh, the Otto engine, although there were clear heat engines before Otto. Um, so really, the IC engine, as we know today, is, is the model of new technology, which uh, maybe gets forgotten a lot, but uh, uh, that doesn't mean we understand it yet. Uh, there's still a lot about IC engines and all of those systems, really, that remains to be discovered. But the re- one of the main reasons why the IC engine dominates is because of the fuel. You know, we shouldn't fool ourselves all this tricky engineering we do is it, uh, in any way... Uh, the cause for its success. The cause for its success is the fact that uh, fossil fuels have very high energy density, whether it's uh, energy per unit mass or energy per unit volume. Fossil fuels are up there. And in comparison, the battery technologies that we have today are nowhere near. And that really is the root of the problem that we see today. Um, liquid hydrocarbons are so good that we can't live without them in the modern way. Um, there are some solutions that have to pass, possibly to Anyway, an IC engine, or uh, a reciprocating engine, as we see in uh, uh, most passenger cars still today, it is a very simple mechanical device. It has a cylinder with a piston that travels up and down it, and you have a means of getting air and fuel in, a means of setting fire to it, and a means of getting the waste products out. Um, the four-stroke cycle that um, Otto popularised means that you split the whole working cycle into four strokes of the uh, of the piston up down up down uh, or the other way round down up down up. So you draw air in, uh, you add fuel, you then push the piston back up to compress that, making it a much more efficient process. Uh, you ignite it so that it burns and makes uh, heat, which turns into pressure in the cylinder, and that drives the piston down. That's the only part of the four-stroke cycle that does some useful work for you. And then you have to get rid of the waste product, so you push. The Back up, open the source file, well, push it all out. And uh, all of the variability in the cycle that we are interested in, in uh, uh, well, what we're talking about today, comes from the fact that we have to get air, air in, do something to it, and get the waste product out. And it's the variability around that process that drives uh, a lot of the interesting problems that we have to contend with. Uh, so it doesn't really, we don't see so much uh, variability in diesel engines, interestingly, because diesel engines operate. Ignition engine, you have to control the amount of air that comes into the engine to regulate the power output. And then you have to mix it with exactly the right amount of fuel to get the combustion to work properly. So the key message there, and unlike a diesel engine where it doesn't matter how much air is in there, the power is regulated by how much fuel you get, which is a much easier thing to control. Uh, getting the right amount of air into the engine and getting that behaviour repeatable time upon time is the really difficult bit because it's dependent on the conditions either side of the engine, and within the engine itself, the state of the gas in each of those three spaces, as time progresses, has a really big effect on what happens in the combustion event. That's that's where it gets really difficult. So, in thermodynamic terms, the cycle is really elegantly simple, Otto cycle. You take some gas, you compress it with a piston, you release some heat instantaneously, you expand it to get some useful work out by removing pushing the piston down again, uh, and then you get rid of all of that heat through the exhaust valve. Uh, The diesel cycle is um, very similar in that you compress some gas and then you release some heat. But here you say that it's not practical to release that heat instantaneously at the top of the centre. Actually it takes some time so that as the piston travels down you release heat and that keeps the pressure nice and constant. And then you expand and then you reject heat. So that's if you look at pressure against volume inside the engine. But often we look at pressure against crank handles, so this is as the engine rotates. the ideal auto cycle would look like this. Compress, release heat, expand, reject heat. Diesel cycle, very similar, but you just got a flat top to it there. Um, so that's all we're trying to do, <coughs> it's not that difficult. Uh, in a real engine, it doesn't look anything like that. If you look at the PV diagram, it's recognisably similar, but everything gets blurred a bit. You get some heat loss here, combustion isn't instantaneous, it takes time. You get more heat loss here, you get pumping losses, getting the air in and out and so on, so it blurs what is a very simple picture. This is a little, uh, one of the least power dense engines that we have run here at the University. By comparison, well actually if you put them on top of each other you can see clearly, this is the ultra boost engine, the photograph that was on the front screen, and you're running at, uh, in this engine you may be running at 40 bar, 35 bar uh, peak pressures, in a highly downsized modern gasoline engine you're running at about 140 bar, Um, you'd like to go even further, perhaps. And you get uh, very much more rapid combustion at those high temperatures and pressures. It gets quite significant problems. And already you can see some variability in there between the cylinders. But generally, why do we get combustion variability in IC engines from cycle to cycle? It's around the motion of the fuel and the air mixture during the combustion. The detailed, small-scale motion. It's about the different amounts of fuel, air, and recycled exhaust gas. that involved because that's a really important thing. How much waste products have you got trapped in the cylinder at the start of the next cycle? And that varies and that drives different behaviours from cycle to cycle. And then it's about variations in the mixture composition, especially near the sparkler where, where the flame starts. If you get a, a different rate of flame growth at the start of the combustion, that different rate of heat release propagates throughout the entire cycle and drives different behaviour than the previous cycle. So there's a spark plug, there's visualization of a flame growing in a roughly spherical fashion over the first few microseconds of the cycle. And that's subject to variations in all of these things. And if that's different, everything else is different. And we can influence that in many ways as engineers. You can design an engine that is designed to let lots of air in very quickly so that you get high power density. But that's not maybe the best thing. What we probably want is lots of air motion mix the air and fuel very thoroughly so that you get fast and reliable combustion This is a visualisation of what happens in uh, one of the more modern Ford engines. So we end up designing uh, inlet valves and combustion chain shapes that encourage lots of mixing at the expense sometimes of getting lots of air into the system. And if we can do that, we can help to minimise the variation from cycle to cycle. But inevitably there is some variation, and that variation is uh, in this case we're looking at the um, air fuel ratio, which is the amount of air compared to the amount of fuel. For a gasoline engine, is an uh, ideal amount which makes all of the fuel is consumed in the combustion and all of the oxygen is consumed. And that's the stoichiometric ratio. And if you deviate away from that, then things change. So here we're seeing uh, the cumulative mass fraction burn, so how much of the fuel is burning over the cycle. And if you progressively dilute the charge, you get a slower combustion. And the, that's great if you mean it to happen, but if it happens by accident, you get different rates of burn, different performance, everything changes. But we can, as I said, design engines that are less susceptible to that, got more air motion, uh, higher pressure fuel injection to get better mixing, bigger spark to make them burn more quickly. So this is an example of older technology. It was great in its day in the late 90s, early 2000s, but uh, it's indirect injection of fuel in the manifold rather than in the cylinder. A whole host of advances in a later engine, such as this, and you can see as air fuel ratio gets progressively leaner, more air, less fuel. Uh, you see, in this older engine, you get uh, combustion variability, and here it's coefficient for variation of heat release. It um, gets great very quickly, that, that variability increases as you go lean. Uh, in a more modern engine, there's quite a long period where it's tolerated, uh, and then as you get progressively more lean, you get uh, variation creeping in. But you notice this goes up to 10%, whereas this older engine, that scale is 20%. So we are improving things by better design, but variability is still present. So what does that look like if you look at the pressure in the cylinder, where it really matters? If you want to know what's happening in an engine, you need to look at in-cylinder conditions. So here we've got uh, 10 cycles plotted on top of each other, uh, cylinder pressure against crank Um, this is a stoichiometric ratio, so all of the air, all of the oxygen is used, all of the fuel is used, nothing left over. And you get some variability. Um, if you instead look at what would happen at quite a lean ratio, just uh, just enough air and fuel, uh, just about the right amount to burn successfully, but you're already seeing quite a lot more variability. Um, so you might think, well, I just don't do it. You know, why would you do that? Go um, and operate where the engine's happy. Uh, there are lots of reasons why that is a good idea, but there are many. Motivations for running closer to the extreme conditions like this. Uh, in terms of, for example, you might want to get very hot exhaust when you switch the engine on to get the exhaust catalyst hot quickly so that it's starting to remove the pollution from the exhaust. So there are lots of reasons why you might want to use an engine in a way that is not perhaps the most uh, stable from one side on to the next. If you look at the same sort of data in a PV diagram, it, it's just a different way of looking at the same stuff. This is the one that's running slightly rich, this is the one that's running quite a lot leaner, and you can see lots of variability there. Uh, incidentally, the area inside that curve is proportional to the amount of work done per cycle. So a bigger area means more work, which means more efficiency if it's the same amount of fuel each time. So if we look at some experimental data from our readings some of our partners' uh, test facilities, and here, it's the same sort of stuff, but we've got four cylinders um, from the 8 engine that we looked at. Um, so, cylinder one, two, three, four, and then down the page, we're moving from stoichiometric air fuel ratio, so nearly the ideal case, and getting progressively leaner as we go down the page. And what you can see is a fairly uniform condition up here, and then as you start to go to leaner conditions, you're getting successively uh, uh, less uniform combustion. And this is just pretty much raw data cylinder pressure against crank angle. Um, Interestingly, um, one of the pieces of analysis that Roger was doing is trying to find where in the cycle that variability comes from. So in black here we've got cylinder pressure, and in red you've got of variation of cylinder pressure at that crank angle at that precise time, looking across a whole range of cycles. So first you see a lot of variability out here, but this is during the filling and emptying part. That's not during the compression and combustion, it's not the working part of the cycle. <coughs> so if you look at the working part of the cycle, pretty much all of the variability is coming in here in the early part of the e-release, so the start of combustion, which is not unexpected. Because we said at the start of combustion where the flames are growing, if you get variability there, everything else is uh, affected by that. And that turns out to be the most variable part of the working cycle because of the small scale turbulence. look across a whole range of air-fuel ratios, interestingly, stoichiometric, slightly leaner, leaner again, very lean, uh, you get a similar pattern. The variability is greatest during that early part of the combustion rate. So what else can we look at? If you look at the histogram of how uh, cylinder pressure, maximum cylinder pressure uh, varies from cycle to cycle, stoichiometric air-fuel ratio, you see there is a distribution, it looks a bit like a normal distribution, there's a, as you would expect, there's a spread. Uh, that gets uh, wider as you get leaner, there's more variability. Interestingly it gets clipped down here at the very extreme conditions and the reason for that clipping, you don't see the very low pressures, peak pressures because actually what you're seeing here is the compression work, or the compression you get a maximum cylinder pressure whether or not you have any combustion just because the piston's coming up and compressing the charge so you're not (coughs) going to get that compression pressure so there's nothing down the low end that's interesting, but probably not all that useful. What's more useful to us as engineers is how much work is being done per cycle. And so we <coughs> look at uh, uh, an analogy to what Well, how do you make work before you release heat? And this is the amount of heat that's released per cycle. And again, if you plot a histogram, there is some spread to it. There's cyclic variability, even when you've got pretty much ideal conditions. And as the uh, air-fuel ratio gets leaner and leaner, gets less ideal from the combustion point of view, more sensitive to initial conditions, you start to get a widening of that distribution, and it starts to get uh, less normal as you get near to the bottom, it's a bit more skewed, and you're starting to see a mirror image of that flipping process, so that you're not getting many of the, uh, the high-pressure, uh, high-heat-release cycles. So if we're trying to find some structure in that, looking at histograms is all very well at looking at population, but... Can we see any structure, any evidence of, that that is deterministic, but it's uh, influenced by uh, things that we could write an equation for? So one of the tools that's quite nice to have a look at that is a phase plot. And by that, what we're doing is taking the heat release per cycle and then plotting it against the heat release on the next cycle. And if you do that, if all the cycles are the same, well, it's not a very interesting plot. You're just going to get all of the points on top of each other. If you've got some random noise on the system, you'll get a circular blob of points like this, because uh, the cycle that you're looking at now is nearly the same as the cycle previously, with a bit of randomness added in. Um, If, though, there is some evidence that, uh, or some reason to think that a previous cycle affects the next cycle, then you might expect a pattern like this. So here, that's saying that you've got an alternating pattern of high heat release, low heat and still a fair old helping of randomness as well, making a spread. Um, but there is some evidence that you might have um, a high-low, high-low kind of pattern going on with heat release. Uh, is it some sort of bifurcation? Are you getting a, a split in the behavior where there's two states of the system can be? Possibly. Um, so if we look again across, now this is a different engine, this is the later uh, technology, so you're getting less variability anyway, but you still see this kind of effect. This is um, four cylinders out of the V8. They didn't have enough money to put pressure transducers in all of the cylinders, but uh, it's half of the cylinders. And uh, cylinders one to four, and again, airfield ratio getting leaner and leaner as we go down, and you're getting some fairly strong evidence that you've got a cyclic effect going on inside the engine. Uh, So uh, around stoichiometry, you've got very tight clustering. Interestingly, not all the cylinders are the same. And that's one thing that's interesting to us as an engineer, trying to get uh, similar behaviour from one cylinder to the next, because if that's ideal, this one is not ideal. You know, you'd know, you like it to be closer. Uh, so what can we learn about how the engine operates and how the cylinders interact uh, in order to try and get them each behaving more similarly to each other? Uh, and then as the uh, as it gets leaner, you're still seeing some differences between the cylinder. And that's largely due to differences in the distribution of air and fuel between the cylinders and the interactions in the manifolds that link all of those things together. So there are lots of other ways to look at time series data to try and see whether there are repeating patterns. Uh, if you do a recurrent plot, that's essentially a way of comparing the same time series with itself over different time scales. And just to see, try and calibrate yourself to what it should look like, if you look at a periodic sine wave, then if you do that, so time is marching on as you go up the page and to the right, uh, you get getting a recurring pattern which leads to diagonal stripes. A chaotic system produces a bit of a short diagonal patterns like this, in, uh, and then true random stuff gives you, just as you might expect, a scattering of points evenly distributed across the page, more or less. So those are mathematical systems without, uh, without real life getting in the way. So what does our system look like? Well, uh, yeah, there's something going on there. It, it, there's some kind of Especially, interestingly, uh, it's more <coughs> some kind of periodic behaviour, repeating behaviour at uh, the uh, stoichiometric or more ideal uh, air fuel ratios. Gets less clear to me, certainly, because I'm not that adept at reading these things. What's going on as you get more lean? So let's have a look at something more simple, a relative, uh, a relative return plot. Uh, we're looking essentially, it's the same thing, comparing the same time series data with itself, but displaced further and further along in time and uh, it's looking at the probability that you've come back to the same condition. And here, we've got uh, uh, 40 events that we can look at and then progressively make it, uh, delay relative to itself, and on this engine, and this is quite interesting and I'm not entirely sure why, this is the, uh, the Audi V8 again, we had a, a period of seven patterns. every seven events looks quite similar to each other, and didn't really express that, there's no Reason that we're modelling why that would be the case. It's probably something to do with the air path as in a, a resonance at this particular engine speed with this particular distribution of uh, cylinders and manifolding. Uh, but it's not something that I could say is a general case across all engines of all types. And it's interest it would be interesting to look at more data for more engines to see if this is a characteristic effect. Uh, Interestingly, it's a very strong pattern at the stoichiometry uh, conditions, and as you get uh, uh, leaner, as the combustion gets less ideal, you start to lose some of that pattern, you're getting a bit more randomness coming in. So is that deterministic? Well, maybe. Uh, there's a lot of randomness going on, all sorts of things that we can't account for, uh, but we think there is some structure there. Um, and one, one thing that would be interesting is, can you uh, use your insight into what you think's going on to write a model. And if you write a model, a mathematical model, do you see some effects that would lead us to think that there's some uh, chaotic behavior in there? Um, and that's clearly not just something that we're interested in. There are a relatively small group of people around the world that are interested in this kind of effect. Uh, one group at Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge National Laboratory has been looking at problems like this for a long time. Um, and I thought this paper was quite nice because they had um, a relatively capable model of combustion within an engine, and they were trying to see whether they could see any evidence of interesting things. And you have to give it a bit of context here. What they're they're doing here is um, uh, they're looking at heat releasing an engine as they add in more exhaust gas recirculation. What's that? You take some exhaust from the exit of the engine, you recirculate it to the inlet of the engine. That's an emissions control technique and also helps to prevent abnormal combustion. Because it slows down the reaction, it makes everything a little bit more um, gentle, and it avoids some of the more extreme combustion effects, very high temperatures that lead to high amounts of oxides and nitrogen. So it has an emissions control benefit, but it also does nasty things to your combustion, if you're not careful. So uh, here we've got what would happen as you make the system progressively more lean if you move to the left on each diagram, you're getting leaner, a bit like we saw before. But on top of that, you're getting progressively more exhaust gas recirculation. Here you've got a 5% dilution of the charge with exhaust, 6%, 8, 36. And what you're seeing is a what seems to be a bifurcation, you're getting different behaviours. So initially, if you look at low amounts of EGR, you just get less heat release, the combustion is getting less good as you put more uh, air into the system. But here you're seeing two possible states, and by the time you get down to this lots of EGR, it's very clear that two possible states, either you're getting uh, a modest amount of heat release, or you're getting nothing. So it's either working or it's not working, and it's a bit unstable, it can go from one state to the next. Um, if you plot a whole series of cycles, and compare it to what you saw on the engine, the green points are from uh, the real test on the engine, and here's the simulation of it, and you're getting this, uh, familiar sort of banana shape, uh, boomerang shape on a phase lag plot, and as you get progressively leaner, that's getting more pronounced. And the simulation is predicting somewhat similar behavior than you saw in real life, which is gratifying. Uh, but why do we care? And the reason we care is if there is variability and we can't control it, that's a bit of a nuisance. But if there is variability and we can reduce it, then there's an engineering benefit. Uh, If we can control the variability and reduce it, then we can run closer to the limits. So we could run closer to the lean limit where if you step too far, it doesn't work at all. But if you're just the right side of the limit, then you've got hot exhaust to get the catalyst hot quickly, for example, Um, or you can get more efficient combustion or any whole host of uh, improvements in terms of economy or emissions. Um, But if your variability is too large, what that means is you have to stay well away from the limits because you're in danger of falling over to the wrong side of that limit too often and you start to get uh, really seriously bad effects in the engine. excessive emissions, poor fuel consumption, roughness that the driver can perceive as being not something that's nice, uh, potentially even the engine stalling, not working at all. Um, but if you can predict that variability, then that's the first step to being able to control it. And hypothetically, the authors that, um, from Oak Ridge designed a controller that, using the insight of what's going on, then took some control action to say, I've got a bad cycle about to happen, I'm going to do something about it, I'm going to put more fuel in or I'm going to advance the spark. And when they switched that controller on, uh, compared to the grade where there was no control, they managed to get much more stable I and mean, the heat release, uh, much lower hydrocarbon emissions and much lower NOx emissions. Uh, so uh, actually what they're doing is reducing the variability in all of those things, but in the process they're also reducing the absolute amount of it, and allowing it to go much closer to the limits of feasible operation. So there is a really useful benefit if we can predict this variability, and if we can control it. So we thought here that um, it would be nice to see if we could replicate that work, but with one distinction. We wanted to have a much simpler combustion model than they were using at Oak Ridge, because we wanted to do many more cycles and look at longer periods of time over which the engine is operating. If you've got a very complex model, that's great, but there's a lot of computation overhead, and we haven't got big enough computers yet to do everything we would like to do, ideally. So we tried a very simple one-dimensional approach, where that means the engine model understands wave motion in pipes, but it doesn't have any spatial awareness of what's going on inside the combustion chamber. So it's a bit limiting because a lot of things that we've already talked about rely on spatial Resolution inside the combustion chamber to understand what's going on. But nevertheless, let's try and use the tools we've got to hand. Does it work? Um, so, this is a model of the Audi 1.8T. It's a very simple model. It splits the engine into a series of pipes and volumes, and uh, it has a pretty simple combustion model. Um, and then the combustion model. But I should start by saying that normally, when we do modelling of engines, we pretend that everything is the same at the start of every cycle. So we're modelling what happens during the cycle, we see what comes out of the engine in terms of temperature and pressure and all the rest of it, and then we ignore all that um, and say that the next cycle will be exactly the same as the one we just simulated, together with initial conditions that bear no relation, really, to what we've already modelled happening at the end of the cycle. So instead of doing that, it seems more sensible to do a dynamic simulation where you simulate one cycle, that has some conditions at the end of it, Those are the initial conditions for the next cycle, and so on. You keep simulating one cycle after another, and updating your initial conditions as you go. And if you do that, then you stand a chance of having a simulation where the cycle we're interested in now is influenced by what happened previously. So any kind of deterministic behavior should be able to be modeled properly. And the key link between those is what happens to the combustion next time because of what happened this time. And we had some really simple relationships, really simple. So if, you're, if you see how much exhaust is trapped in the engine and your heat release is dependent on that in a somewhat nonlinear way and it depends also on how much uh, air and fuel is present so there's quite a lot of nonlinear behavior there um, and also but well, it's basically different ways of expressing the same thing how is combustion affected this time by what happened last time and what how much is exhaust fuel and fresh air trapped in the cylinder <coughs> I've already said those things vary from one cycle to the next. And if you do that, you can get quite a good representation of the whole nastier range of combustion events that we saw in this engine. So, uh, when it was running rich or when it was running lean, um, we had uh, early and late combustion events in both cases, and we were able to simulate that whole range of combustion quite nicely just with a very simple model. And this is quite different. we normally do, we model what's really going on, and then we ignore it and superimpose our idea of what combustion should look like, because it's what we would like to happen rather than what's actually happening. Um, And if you do that, then you can start to get some behaviour on a a face-like plot that looks a little bit as if there's something deterministic happening. And this is complicated in in as much as we've got um, measured results from an engine as pluses, the simulated result, results as um, zeros, they're never gonna lie on top of each other for a whole host of reasons. Um, but you're starting to get some shapes that think you might have some realistic behavior being modeled. Um, if you do it in the traditional way, either you get just one point, because every, every cycle is the same, or if we start to be interested at all in variability, what we've tended to do in, in uh, the industry is just superimpose a normal distribution over some of the key um, Key, uh, key inputs, so you start to get a cloud of points, but it's a fairly uh, round cloud that doesn't take into account the structural behaviour of the system. So it's kind of useful. Um, and then one of the other things that uh, uh, Roger was interested in, and we thought was was a nice thing to do with the data, is try to get a picture of what was happening in the data set. Um, you could just show some of those numbers, you could draw a graph, but it's not it's not um, Perhaps the easiest way of visualising uh, interpreting the data. So we wondered whether sonification would be useful. Uh, sonification is the use of non-speech audio to convey information or to uh, perceptualise data. So you could just record the exhaust mode uh, from an engine. And someone who plays with engines, who's interested in engines, who understands a bit about how they work, uh, will be able to determine fair amount about what's going on just by listening to it. And at the bottom there you've got uh, a sound recording from Tailpiper, the normal car. And I don't know if this will work, but this is... from an engineering point of view? I don't know. Um, So one of the questions we had was uh, what's an effective approach to sonification? How can we use sound to explore the data? Uh, Can listeners detect differences between different uh, types of patterns within the heat release data, purely from the way they sound? Um, And will those patterns reflect real changes in the combustion? So that was the approach. Take some time series data. Now you need to do some interpretation to get to something that we're going to listen to, rather than just have just listen to the combustion. We're uh, going to symbolise it. I'll show, say, slightly uh, about that. In a uh, then we're going to map it across onto some sound, and then you could output that either as a directly as a MIDI file or as a musical score if you have to be musical in any way. Um, now um, we could just make Random noises. Interpret data as frequencies, play noise. But there's some evidence to suggest that musical notes are more memorable and we're more used to dealing with them and We might spot patterns in them more easily. So we decided to uh, map the data onto a musical scale uh, because if you have a scale such as a blues scale, those are notes which we already know sound musical when you put them together in various patterns. It may be more recognisable to us as human beings. We might be able to spot the difference. So how are we going to do that? Well, first of all, uh, the symbolization step. We've got heat release in joules per cycle. And then if you look at the mean mean heat release, draw a blue line through the data at that point, and then say, is it above that line or is it below that line? If it's above that line, we're going to call it a one. If it's below that line, we're going to call it a zero. So we've made the data into a binary stream, And then if you take three, uh, three Binary values and make them into a word. So the first one there is 111, the first three are all above the mean. 111 equals 7, then you've got a number. If you take a a 3 bit window sliding across that whole music, uh, that whole sequence, next one, you've got the first one is 111, the next one is 110, that's 6. So you've got 7, 6, and keep going. So 7 you can map to a musical note, 6 you can map to a different musical note that you've pre chosen. Um, so that's a way of making some musical notes from a time series later, according to whether it's above the mean or below the mean. Is it a good event or a bad event? And if you do that, you get something like this for that time series, and you can write it as a musical score, and that's your... I don't read music. Roger reads music, I don't. Um, but fortunately, there are various bits of software to help us interpret that as music. So what have we done when we do that? Well, actually we've produced a rolling average filter. If you look here, you've got the red line is the original e release data in joules, It goes up and down, up and down, up and down. There's a bit of structure to it, a bit of pattern. Um, The black line shows numerical values of the musical notes that that process results in. And what you can see is that it's a bit of a rolling average smoothing, um, and it's also Uh, Compressing the data bit, it's removing the most extreme values and it's bringing us back to a more uh, uh, more centre-weighted pattern after the filtration. So uh, there are lots of other ways that this could have been done, it seemed like this would be an interesting idea at the time, it seemed a useful thing to do, and the idea behind it was could we see any difference, or could we hear any difference? where it might not work. That doesn't look at all like it should be. Oh, that's a real pain. Because uh, <coughs> you can see what I'm building up to, you yeah? <laughs> know. <laughs> you could always whistle it. I could whistle it. Yeah, does anyone play music? I can play, yeah, I'll show you that. Yeah. So that must be the bit, when I loaded it onto here, that says this file is corrupt, do you want to save do you want to fix this far or not? Yeah. Well, maybe I should. play I that with earlier. Because yeah. the other thing I learned is that modern computers that need this to connect to a video it's not all that reliable just yet. So let me see if this is anyway. I'm filming it up now. That'll be really good. So, can we hear anything at all? So, the other thing is, does it play through? It should just play. Yeah, it should do. Maybe if I pull that out. Um, oh, ah, yeah. cool. Just pull the lead out before I get So that's stoichiometric air fuel ratio, that's what it sounds like. So it's not going to win any awards. <laughs> Here there's a certain periodicity to it, you get repeated patterns. Now the real test is, does that sound different to this? This is the extreme lean that we could run the engine. struggled to hear it. We listen to this for hours, and it does go on for hours. How long have you got? So, now that's one cylinder doing one air fuel ratio, and what you could do if you so inclined is you could play all of them together, uh, probably. Anyway, it sounds like all of my kids have got together and are jumping up and down on the piano. Uh, but the point behind that is that um, it was an attempt to try and illustrate what's going on in the data. Actually, what I think we found was after we'd done the filtering, when we got to this point, that was most of the benefit. Because what we'd done is symbolise the data to uh, whether it's high or low, and then found a way to write uh, write that down in a way that you could read. And if you're tone deaf like me, that's as good as it's going to get. Um, because whether you do that to musical notes, or whether you um, have that as uh, a subsequent time series, you can see uh, the cyclic behaviour of that. Now we have filtered it, we have put treatment in there that's doing a rolling time average, um, so that is a manipulation of the real data, but you're seeing some of the variability in there. And that certainly, when you look at it in that form, that you can certainly see differences as you move to a progressively less stable combustion effect. So that's just a way to help us to interpret the data. Um, there are loads of descriptive statistics that also help us to determine what's going on in the data. And this is a tool, perhaps, to help us uh, see that more clearly, more quickly. And it's, uh, we can pretend that it's fine. Uh, so, great. There are some conclusions that do work. Um, so we think there is some deterministic, chaotic behaviour. in Well, there's clearly deterministic, there's some chaotic behaviour in the engine? Possibly, probably. Um, it's hard to tell sometimes because there's a whole lot of random noise in there as well. But it is a useful exercise because if we assume that there are more complex behaviours than the usual model, and we go after techniques that can allow us to model those, then we can get some useful engineering benefits. So it's a useful premise to start off with. Um, and it's quite gratifying that our expect- expectation of this nonlinear. Maybe chaotic behavior. If you take that approach and do the modeling, then uh, we get models that turn out to be useful and match what we observe in the real world. Um, And if we can model it, therefore we stand a chance of controlling it and that will allow us some benefits in terms of fuel consumption emissions. Those are just the tips of the iceberg, really though, because what we're actually trying to do is make an engine that is cleaner and more efficient. If you can do that, you can potentially make it smaller by downsizing you can potentially make it uh, work with fuels that we don't currently use all that much today. Low-grade fuels, fuels that are more sustainable so on. So there's a lot of benefit in understanding more about the engine than we do today. Even though we've been working on it for well over a century, there's still plenty of stuff about it that we don't fully understand or can't model properly. And we can make music even. (laughs) Um, And that was about as much as I wanted to say, uh, actually. There's a graphic there that shows that we're a stroke the advanced Propulsion Centre, but that's of limited interest to many of you in the room. Uh, so that's about it. Uh, any questions? Chris, thank Thanks. you very much. So we have time for a couple. If there are burning questions, people would like to ask. Chris has a burning question. It's a question, straight comment, really. I mean, yeah. there are various techniques around if you have data which looks random to test for chaosiness, as it were, well. um, basically to say see if there's an underlying map um, neural network methods. method so, I wonder if, you, if you've tried any of those. No, and no, I think that's a, an opportunity with the. Uh, I mean, yes, there were some uh, some tests that, um, particularly Roger, looked at in his, his work, but I think it's it's entirely fair to say that there's lots more. than there's a vast amount more data than we were able to look at in one uh, piece of research. And the being a system that is very sensitive to initial conditions, you're going to get a whole host of responses according to how you perturb it. So the amount of data there is to trawl through is colossal, and uh, so there's lots to do. So part of the opportunity, working from my Mind is to do that with the advice of those tools and to go and hunt that we think is going to show some more interesting patterns. I can't wait to work with mm. your points. Yes. Uh, you've done a lot of testing, and um, it's very, very interesting. How much did fuel quality and analysis affect it? What type of fuel did you use? Um, all of this work was standard pump gasoline, so 95 on, just as you would get if you went to fill up on the forecourt. Um, The the main area that we've seen the fuel effect is the uh, tendency of the engine to to detonate, to get abnormal combustion. Um, So if you have high-octane fuel, it's less likely to detonate, by which I mean, um, you ignite the fuel, you get combustion in the normal way that you hope, and at some point, if you're not lucky, you end up with the residual gas, well, the, the um, gases towards the periphery of the combustion chamber that um, are out on the edges of the, uh, the system. Before the flame gets to them, they already meet, they spontaneously combust because they get to temperature and pressures that will promote spontaneous combustion. If that happens, you get an uncontrolled, very rapid combustion event that can damage the engine and is undesirable, and the driver can hear it, the driver doesn't like it. So, what you have to do is you have to um, degrade the system. You have to reduce the efficiency, reduce the temperatures and pressures to avoid that problem. And the main effect we see, or have seen, I mean there are many huge number of fuel effects, but the main area that we've done work on was on the, the ultra-boost engine, looking at the effect of different fuel formulations and their tendency to knock or not. And if you get fuel that's very resistant to knock, you can get much higher efficiencies, effectively advance the spark at higher pressures, higher temperatures, and more efficient combustion. And also you find that um, the variability of certain fuels in that situation is greater than others, because they're more determined at the the rate of combustion in those really extreme conditions. Um, So, I mean, that's just another example of where you get cyclic variability, but then you are... Definitely moving from a normal combustion to an abnormal combustion, and that's uh, the fuel properties are really heavily limited when you when you step over that limit to that normal combustion. Uh, what we haven't really done is much study of within normal combustion uh, how much fuel properties um, contribute to stability of combustion. Uh, there are other research groups that do much more of than that. Thank you. Uh, sorry. Uh, the bifurcation phase of your chaos uh, and some of the patterns uh, looked as if they might be similar to the effect you'd get if you had, say, a resonance in the exhaust that was the right frequency. Yeah. Have you tried doing the tests at a different engine speed to see what the effect is? Yeah, um, you get um, similar behaviours at a range of engine speeds. And the main data was taken at idle and then uh, so, you know, 800 and then another data set at two thousand rpm. And you see similar behaviours at both of those. As you go to um, higher speeds, I think you can still see those behaviours, but they tend to be uh, masked somewhat by momentum of the um, air fuel engine. And, uh, however, uh, while well the effects of the, in the Oak Ridge paper, um, we're looking at heat release at, at five thousand rpm, very high speeds. So that's looking at in cycle heat release as a as a product of the um, combustion within the cylinder, much and it's a diesel engine, so in both cases, much less affected by the air motion. And then you see those effects um, across a wide speed range. So I think one of the challenges there is that there are multiple sources of non-linearity, um, some of which may lead to chaotic behaviour, some of which are just non-linear. And trying to understand one from the other and try and say, okay, so what are we going to do about that? Is, is a big challenge. Uh, in general, I would say that we are quite good at modelling non-linear systems. Um, and a lot of the time we do that by pretending that they're linear over uh, short interviews, and then a lot of problems go away. And as we get more demanding with our analytical models, we need to stop doing that so much and have much more representative non-linear and then